my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And Will, have you had any nightmares lately? Yeah, bitch. <laughs> Whoa! No, I was looking more for a deep dive into the fact that the pandemic is making a lot of people's dreams very um, intense. Have you had that experience? I'll get you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. <laughs> oh, I mean, okay, so it's still Freddy Krueger, eh? Who am I doing an impression of? Uh, the Wicked Witch of the West, the scariest of all dream demons. Listen, before we get started, I have an announcement to make, and it's that... It is Shocktober. Oh! <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's right, you did folks. The, the, match. Next... <laughs> the next four episodes, uh, maybe five, I don't know, four at least, are annual dive into the wild world of horror cinema. And every year we like to tackle at least one franchise during this holiest of months in the important cinema club calendar. And this year we finally we've been doing this podcast for five years and we finally get to a nightmare on elm street what do you think was the reticence about tackling this subject because i like these movies but every time it would come up we'd be like uh nightmare on elm street why not Texas chainsaw massacre instead you know i think that's just it i think we like these movies but i think there have always been other ones that we thought would be more fun to talk about more fun to revisit and it's strange too because in our first Shocktober, I think we did Friday the 13th, which were running basically parallel to the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and I think by most objective standards are worse movies. And yet, I think I feel a little more affection in my heart for those Friday the 13th. I do too. And, you know, I sit back and wonder why that is. Wouldn't I be more interested in the imaginative, you know, craziness of the Nightmare on Elm Street films? But I think it kind of boils down to the Friday the 13th have just a base purity to them. And Jason, as a silent killing machine, has more things that the viewer can impose on him than Freddy Krueger, who is so so well defined that only Robert England can play him. I think you're absolutely right on those points. And also, I would say that I think on some fundamental level, I have always found the Friday the 13th movies scarier. I mean, I don't find them that scary exactly, but the, the premise of them and the sort of abject base artlessness of them. It's like you're trapped in the woods and there's this faceless nameless well he's got a name this faceless killer who for no reason is chopping you up and there's nothing you can do about it and there's no reason for it that's such a nightmarish concept you know i think another issue that i have is i never became a fan of freddy krueger the character i know technically in the lore he's not a pedophile but that's what you read it as he absolutely is a pedophile He's a child killer, quote unquote, in the same way that Peter Laurie and M is a child killer because they weren't allowed to make him a pedophile. Wes Craven said that he was a pedophile in the original draft and they, he actually changed it because there was a wave of them that were making the news at that time and he didn't want to feel like he was exploiting that. Do you remember the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from about 10 years ago where they actually did make him a child molester? Yes. And did you know that in the original draft of that script, he was supposed to be innocent? Oh, interesting. Because in the film finished movie there's a scene where Rooney Mara and the other guy go to his secret lair and they find Polaroids uh, presumably of child porn I, I assume that movie is terrible and the reason that it is is that it takes an imaginative like anything can happen concept and does nothing with it you know the Nightmare on Elm Street movies 
do or have lingered kind of large in my mind ever since I was a kid, though, because I was very scared of these these movies in the video store. The boxes were terrifying. Oh, yeah, because they had amazing covers. <laughs> well, especially the first one where it's the woman in bed with the claws over her face and the image of Freddy Krueger, like this uh, burn victim man with, with knife fingers. Very scary. And that's the issue with Freddy Krueger as a character is that he works so well in one because he is almost whatever you can imagine. He is constantly morphing and changing and cutting himself. And later on, you almost get the sense of like, what's the coolest Freddy can be? I mean, Rennie Harlan has said it multiple times about his entry in the series, part four, uh, The Dream Master. He went, I wanted to make Freddy Krueger James Bond. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I guess. I mean, it worked for him. That film was a big hit but when you go back to the original one the core concept is what if you died in your dream and you died in real life and that's scary to people because you have to go to sleep it's part of your life the original 1984 nightmare on elm street which i had not seen in many years is a lot better than i remembered it i i think it's got a brilliant premise you're never more vulnerable than when you're asleep i mean many people die in their sleep Mostly of natural causes, not usually from serial killers with knife hands. Yeah, usually after like a great bout of lovemaking, your heart just gives out because you've had all the pleasure you can take. And Freddy's a great idea for a monster. The fact that, I mean, the setting of these movies in uh, White Picket Fence suburbia, where uh, this sounds like American Beauty, the way I'm describing it, like, oh, the secrets lurking underneath the facade. If you look at the movies, almost all the horror in the first one that doesn't take place in that like boiler room is on the street. Like it's right there in the title, A Nightmare on Elm Street. You're seeing your day-to-day life, whether it be school or just the street where your house is, but it's different. There's something wrong with it. There's weirdness that, you know, pervades it all, whether it just be smoke or nighttime. The great thing that Wes Craven understands is that dreams make sense, but they're weird and you still go through them Because there's like an internal logic as you're experiencing them, which is something that the future films would just throw out for like, this is a gimmicky dream. I think I've often underrated Wes Craven as a director. I when I think of him, when I remember him, I think of his movies as being kind of functional looking. I'd forgotten that Nightmare on Elm Street has a bit of the feel of an Italian horror movie like a Lucio Fulci film, not just for the outlandish gory imagery and and the sort of the strength and power of those images like that scene where heather langenkamp's in the bathtub and the the freddy krueger claw comes out from between her legs like that's a very strong and memorable image but also for the sort of hint of i don't know if surrealism is the right word but the otherworldly quality just of a lot of the conversations and interactions in the first movie it feels just a little stilted and weird in a way that I don't think a lot of Wes Craven's other films do. It's easy to forget that like Wes Craven is a hardcore auteur guy. Like he wrote and directed his own films. These are not, you know, for hire jobs that he came on. These are ideas and concepts that came organically from him. And the way that he executes Nightmare on Elm Street, it's so kind of like in pop culture that you forget when you watch this one that like 
genuine shocks like that dream where she sees Freddy Krueger he's in the darkness he has long arms that is a disquieting image to see and then like he does the thing where there's a cut and she's running away and then it's a little person Freddy off in the background (laughs) just so you know it looks weird and gives Robert England a chance to appear in the same shot like that's good construction of a suspense horror scene and you know it's a great idea for a movie too because not only are you powerless when you're asleep but you're kind of powerless in your own dreams too your dreams are where your subconscious mind take over dreams are often where your brain sorts through information that you've suppressed or that you don't want to think about uh you know that's what a bad dream is and you're powerless in that context and you know unless unless you have a lucid dream you can't wake up from it and this movie follows the classic structures of 50 science fiction film where it's like you know the teenagers know something's going on but the parents don't believe them and this has even a more threatening aura which is the parents are the cause for the thing that's torturing the children and they won't admit it to themselves because if they do that admits that they did something wrong (laughs) what do you think of robert england as freddy krueger i like him i think he's iconic uh he gets pretty silly as the series goes on but i mean i think i think that's (laughs) that's i think i like that too you know i like him clowning around making funny faces and doing dumb jokes and beyond just the burn makeup that claw is such an iconic weapon that like it it just burns itself into the mind of everyone that sees it that's what you remember this scary looking guy with a hat and a claw on his hand something that if you saw the concept art of you would be like well that looks a little bit silly and it would become silly because it would have to be continued but in that like first movie it stands aside as like something a dream mind would make up like maybe you knocked over a bunch of steak knives uh, earlier in the day you saw somebody in your homeroom that was wearing that sweater and it all kind of melds together in this weird unnatural other and I mean, Wes Craven is also stealing, admittedly, from Bunuel left and right, like the goat that shows up in Nightmare on Elm Street. This is kind of a banal observation, but like I'd forgotten that Robert England isn't in a whole lot of these movies, at least in the early ones. You know, he, he's very much kind of like the shark from Jaws. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that would stop happening uh, once he got more and more popular. And, you know, part five is him over a baby carriage being like, shh. Because, you know, that's what you came to see, Freddy Krueger. I mean, I understand why people are fans of this character, but it is so weird that there's, like, Freddy Krueger dolls that came out in the 90s that were meant to be sold to children, and you, like, pull the string and they talked. He's like, what's going on, bitch? Yeah, he's, you know, this child molester, burn victim killer. I, in fact, as a kid, had, like, some shitty Goosebumps type book for kids that was part of a series called, like, Freddy's Nightmares. Freddy Krueger wasn't even really a character in it. He was just like a brand, a brand that was associated on the cover. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And his face was in the top right corner. Um, I'm not sure I ever read the book, actually, but that's an example of like an actual children's product that was marketed with this character. Hey, did you ever see that music video by the Fat Boys? Of course I did. <laughs> with Freddy Krueger. Ready for Freddy. Yeah. God, I've, I've seen that so many times. Love it. Everybody had Freddy fever around this time. They couldn't get rid of it. The only person who didn't like it was Jack Shoulder, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Freddy's Revenge. So this movie is the outlier of the series. It's uh, it was long reviled by horror fans, but in recent years has been kind of reclaimed as a queer classic. You mentioned that the director Jack Shoulder didn't like the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. What was his beef with it? I just 
just think he didn't think it was scary. If you listen to Jack Shoulder in interviews, he's pretty full of himself. He's a director of The Hidden. He also did a horror film before this for New Line about a bunch of escaped mental patients who go on a rampage, including Martin Landau. So I think that's how he got this gig. And you get the sense it's just a guy who thinks he's better than horror movies. You know, they're like a dime a dozen, right? But if he thought he was so great, maybe he should have deciphered the queer subtext. Uh, well, not even subtext, the queer text. Whoa, this movie has queer subtext in it? This is news to me. I know, it's just about a normal boy who's trying to have a normal relationship with the girl that he likes, uh, but there's this there's this thing inside him this that keeps trying to get out Uh, literally a thing inside of him. It's Freddy Krueger, folks. And at one point, you know, he just wants to have the safe embrace of his male friend. Okay, my favorite scene in this movie is when he's making out with the girl that he likes, and then he he runs off to his male friend's room, and the, the line, I made a note on it, I thought it was so funny. He says, something is trying to get inside my body. And the friend says, and you want to sleep with me? <laughs> yep. I mean, everyone who has, you know, who's not a 12 year old boy, who's just happy to see Freddie on screen catches on to that. Except of course for Jack shoulder. You, yeah. You've got this guy whose room he's come to who's shirtless. This movie is full of shirtless men. I mean, most slasher movies don't really have this many boys in them. So for people who don't know, this was written by a gay screenwriter and it starred a gay actor who I believe at that, point uh hadn't come out as gay or he's talked about how he didn't really admit to himself that he was gay i could be incorrect about that and it 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 just like as we've been talking just comes out of every pore of this movie like there's a dance sequence like the whole thematic thrust of the film there's a scene where the bullying sadistic gym teacher freddie like Uh, ties him up naked in the locker room and starts whipping his bare ass with a towel. Close-ups on the bare ass. So what fans of the first one didn't like is that this one doesn't take the concept that if you die in a dream, you die in real life. It's really about this one kid and his struggle with this thing that wants to get out of him. And I think that where the film fails is that, like, There's no thrust or decisions that anyone's really making. It's mostly this kid being like, I don't know what to do. And then like Freddy bursting out of him at one point. It's true. There's not a lot of kind of narrative momentum. It's a little slow a lot of the time, I have to say. I wanted to like it more. There isn't any Freddy killing teenagers or anything like that because it's 100% centered on this boy until the end when Freddy jumps up out of a pool and he's like, you're all my children now. And he just starts murdering people at a party. Yeah, that's a pretty funny scene. I think part three, The Dream Warriors, which I did not revisit for this podcast, is sort of generally considered the best of the sequels, right? Yeah, well, what it does is it kind of takes the concept and applies it to a narrative that people can really get into. The sense that a group of kids know who Freddy is, are helped by Nancy from the first movie, and then they have to go as a group against this killer. It's not like people unsure of what they can do and being killed one by one. And it was directed by Chuck Russell, written by Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont. 
And the whole concept is made by people who obviously love this franchise and want to use it in the best way they see fit. They don't see these dreams as just gimmicks. They want to make them horrifying. They want you to care about the characters. Patricia Arquette plays another principal in this before they get killed. And it isn't just all about the special effects. Even though special effects are great, tons of stop motion Freddy. There's a Ray Harryhausen ripoff skeleton at the end that fights John Saxon. Yeah, a sword fight. I love that scene. And so, like, it's everything you would want from this concept. And when it was a big hit, Mostly thanks to the amazing Dawkins uh, theme song, Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors! <laughs> it led to filmmakers going, how do we like recapture this magic and just not have any idea how to do it? Uh, from my personal opinion. Well, when I saw all of these movies well over a decade ago, I thoroughly enjoyed parts four and five. They're full of the things that I like in these movies, which are big, dumb uh, sub, 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 sub Benwellian dream sequences, uh, colorful shenanigans, Freddy making quips. Like, you remember that scene? I think it's in part four where Freddy's got a pizza and all of the kids whose souls he's taken appear as little sausages on it. And he goes, mm, I love soul food. <laughs> I find that scene like so disgusting. It's like so slimy and gross and like him picking the faces and that cheese just dangling from it. And I mean, those like, it's full-on body horror fun time in those movies. Like, someone turns into a motorcycle. Somebody um, just eats themselves to death. There's one person who turns into a cockroach and, like, her arms break back and she's stuck in a roach motel. It's just, like, high concept. Anything can happen. What is the craziest thing we can think of? Which loses, I think, the thread of, like, oh, this is kind of real life. There's weird stuff going on. And if I die in this, I'll die in real life. All that is gone for, like, the big set piece of Freddy on a beach with sunglasses being like, <laughs> hey, guys, what's up? I mean, he's like a, he's a crypt keeper at that point, right? I mean, that's what he did in Freddy's Nightmares, the Tales from the Crypt uh, ripoff show that he started. You know, I like this Freddy, though. I like Freddy when he's scary, but I also love him when he's a big, stupid jokester. Yeah. Now, we both revisited part six, which... I mean, it's the natural life cycle of all horror franchises. Eventually, the box office receipts start going down, and the producers finally say this is the final chapter ever. You will never, ever again see another Friday the 13th after part four. Well, that happened with the Nightmare <laughs> series with part six, Freddy's Dead, colon, The Final Nightmare. Slash Crime Wave, slash The Nut House. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly recycled elements of the previous films. You got a group of orphans, just like the kids that were in the third movie. Uh, they even kind of look like them as well, and they all take personas when they go in the dreams and they fight. You have the kind of, like, a person in charge, a woman that's a little bit older. There's elements of the dream child, the one that came before that are inserted into this. It has a fun idea Oh, wait, it also has a structure of the first one as well. People forget that the first time on Elm Street does the psycho twist where you think you're following the protagonist and then 25 minutes in, that protagonist gets killed. If you notice, the um, lead at the beginning of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 actually has the same like hair, like hair that Janet Lee does in Psycho, almost as if it's like a wink and a nod about what's going to happen. All of these movies, though, are basically a series of wacky set pieces and... Uh, Freddy's dad has some of the weaker ones. Like I'm thinking of when one of the kids whose name I will, whose identity I will reveal shortly. Uh, one of the kids is put into a Freddy video game and he starts 
bouncing around the room like Super Mario. Don't you mean like the lead in The Nut House, the classic Adam Rifkin film? God, I, you know, I'm a fan of The Nut House. We um, watch it together. <laughs> now, a lot of these Nightmare on Elm Street movies will have uh, a teenager in them who went on to great things. The first one, Johnny Depp is one of the teens. The third one, Patricia Arquette. Rooney Mara is in the remake. Uh, this one has a little boy in it who I kept looking at him and thinking, he looks really familiar. Where do I know that kid from? Oh, I know the live action Garfield. <laughs> That's right. It's Brecken Meyer, folks. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne is also in part three as well. Ah, there you go. I forgot about it. So this him. one is uh, directed by Rachel uh, Talalay, who had been with the franchise since the beginning in uh, a bunch of different roles. And people may know her as the director of Ghost in the Machine and Tank Girl, which is one of hers. And she like goofs it up throughout. Like there is almost no distinction between the real world and the dream world because it's all like silly anything goes. But even then, it's not even silly enough because the dreams are like, eh, it's okay, I guess. Um, Freddie makes somebody's ear so sensitive that it explodes when it hears a noise that's too loud. Yeah, this is what I mean when the set pieces, though wacky and outlandish, are among the weakest in the series. We do learn more about Freddy's backstory than we ever have before. Turns out he was an abusive dad, an abusive husband, just an all-around bad guy. Uh, one One of the lead characters, it turns out, is Freddy's daughter, who witnessed her father strangle her mother to death in cold blood. We see Robert England outside of the makeup. Yeah, all the fans jump to their feet and applaud when that happens. And you know, it just turns out that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. We find out th- that Robert England, or Freddy, was beaten by his own father as a child. Look, I mean, this is a movie, it's not good, but there's a lot of people crashing through things and being like, whoa, when it happened. So, you know, it definitely gets uh, my thumbs up for that. <laughs> but th- this was not the end of the Nightmare franchise, even though- Wait a minute, wait a minute. The last one was called- Freddy's dead the final nightmare not only was there dead there's also the final how could there be more of these uh, will well we should definitely start a class action lawsuit against new line cinema but <laughs> until then we do have to tackle uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare which marked Craven's return to the franchise after a long absence uh, I would also like to put in that lawsuit that they should really call this old nightmare considering how it's just referencing the first one more than anything else and this one is kind of a dry run to scream for Wes Craven it's a meta film in which Heather Langenkamp and other members of the nightmare ensemble play themselves <gasps> John Saxon <laughs> John Saxon is back I really appreciated that and uh, Wes Craven is in there as himself briefly so is bob shea the head of new line cinema bob shea is in almost all of these movies in freddy's dead he's the one who gives a ticket to the guy in the dream at one point (laughs) oh well in new nightmare he plays himself and this one tackles the age-old philosophical question if you put a lot of horror into the world through your art does that horror come to haunt you in real life? Is that the idea? Because I think the main concept of this movie is that there's a magical demon who puts horror into people's minds and is now taking shape. Right, right. The demon uh, comes to the world through the nightmare uh, screenplay. Uh, the the movies harness him. And now he's come back to destroy Heather Langenkamp because she destroyed him in the movie. She imbued that that literary, that written character with the power to do so. Will, if we just all believe, we'll be able to defeat this metaphysical villain somehow. I find that this is kind of the nightmare movie for people who don't like nightmare movies. 
Um, you know, it's it's the one that's kind of uh, ostentatiously clever. Or it's the one for people that like part one and none of the other sequels. Yeah, I mean, I like don't know. Like Wes Craven. <laughs> it, it, it's okay. I found it... Uh, a little bit long. I found it like maybe not quite as not quite as clever as I hoped it would be. I think its main issue is that it needs to be scary to be able to put this concept through the ringer. And Freddy is just like all the other Freddies. In fact, he probably looks more plastic than he ever has in any of the movies in this one. Did you ever get I mean, maybe it's just me, but did you get a little bit impatient with this movie as it was going along? Just being kind of like oh, yeah, yeah, it's a meta movie, and, you know, here's John Saxon, and here's Wes Craven, and they're all playing themselves. And like, I like the idea of, like, um, Wes Craven is writing the script for New Nightmare in this movie, and at the end, Heather Lagenkamp finds herself in the movie, and John Saxon is playing her dad. That stuff is clever, but I think there's a better version of this movie where it's, like, reflecting the lives of these people, like the fact that Wes Craven is stuck in this horror ghetto, and he can't escape, and, like... Instead of living in a big palatial mansion, wouldn't it have been great if he's like, I gotta make this movie, like, no one else would give me any money. Or the fact that Heather, like, she hasn't really acted since then, and this is kind of the movie that's haunted her, has come to define her. You never get that sense from the narrative. You're right, because we see her and Robert England on, like, a daytime talk show. We don't see them at a shitty horror convention. Which is what this movie should have been. It's like, this is how I make my money. Like, Freddy is my life. There's nothing beyond that. Yeah, I think I think that's the problem. It's like, it's a meta movie, but it doesn't really commit to the whole bit. A fun thought that I had while watching it was, what if the good version I just described did happen in real life, but then Wes Craven in real life wrote the script like he does in the movie, and what we're watching is the Hollywood Hollywood version of this story with the bombastic music, and you know, her husband in the movie isn't her real husband, because he actually died in real life, so somebody else is playing him. That idea made this fun. You know, maybe they should have made them uh, two movies, and it would have been like, it would have been like Melinda and Melinda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the gritty version and the more the more poly Hollywood version. You know, I think that Wes Craven had a really fun idea in this, and the fact that he did take it to a hilarious extreme, even though when, like, at one point she's like, that was 10 years ago, made me go, that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, if it was 30 years, now you got yourself a movie. Now, things have been fairly quiet on the Freddy front ever since this. There was, of course, Freddy versus Jason, and there was the remake with Jackie Earl Haley about a decade ago. A decade ago! They could make a new nightmare with Jack Earl Haley at this point. I don't know why it's been so long since there's been one of these movies because I don't think I don't think we should be done with this character or this universe and in fact I would like to see some more radical versions of it. I would like to see this character and his world reinvented because in these movies we've basically just seen one kind of dream world and one kind of Freddy. But like I mean I'm not saying these people would do it but like what would Lars von Trier's Nightmare on Elm Street be, you know? I think the problem with stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street and even Friday the 13th is that they are so popular as franchises that the people in charge almost have a fear of doing anything, which is why you would often get like kind of half-assed product. When Nightmare on Elm Street was at its height and you could just churn them out, there wasn't enough time to like second guess yourself when you're making creative decisions and it just kind of went out into the world. Like, you know Friday the 13th, 
rights. They lost the rights to it because they couldn't get themselves together to make one. Like, they couldn't even do a quick, like, just to keep the rights movies. They lost them! And it's because they're just stuck in this, like, all right, what are we supposed to do? I mean, that happened with Nightmare on Elm Street as well, is that there's a million different versions of the movies. There was one at one point that was supposed to mirror the OJ trial. Did you ever hear about this one? No, wow. Oh, it's wild. It's And it was also written by people who were like, we don't like these Nightmare on Elm Street movies. There was one that was written by Peter Jackson, did a draft of, I think, the fourth or fifth one. <laughs> now, that I would have liked to see. I just think there's so much potential in this concept. Uh, they're terrifying. Living in suburbia, it's terrifying. I'd like to see lots of different kinds of filmmakers do a spin on this, uh, but it won't happen because this is just a franchise that exists to make I mean, money. it sounds like it should be a TV show. <laughs> it would be very easy to do and to do variations on that. But again, Freddy's Nightmare, whew, that show sucks, except for the pilot directed by Toby Hooper, which is very interesting. Hey, what franchise should we do uh, next, Shocktober? Uh, so many to choose from. Leprechaun, Critters, Ghoulies, Hobgoblins, <laughs> Hellraiser. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty slim pickings by this point, Will. <laughs> what about the David Dakota 1313 <gasps> <No>! series? <laughs> okay, we marathon them, every single one. I, I I could not do that. I We would be like Sam Neill at the end of In the Mouth of Madness by the end of that screening. Just like <laughs> Our face is all cut up and stuff like that. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. But before we get into the letters, we have some big announcements, don't we, Will? Oh, man. We have so much stuff that you can buy, and it's and it's good stuff. Longtime listeners to the podcast will know that Justin and I are big fans of Matt Farley and Charles Roxburg, the poets of Manchester, New Hampshire, the directors, creative forces behind such films as Don't Let the River Beast Get You, Freaky Farley, Monsters, Marriage and Murder in Manch Vegas, Local Legends. I could go on. First of all, Justin, through his Gold Ninja Video boutique Blu-ray distribution company, is putting out a criterion level edition of don't Let the River Beast Get You. What can you tell us about So it? Don't Let the River Beast Get You, never released on Blu-ray. Um, what you're going to find on this disc is a treasure trove of special features. You're going to get the movie, a new commentary with me and its director, Charles Roxburgh and Matt Farley. The original commentary that was on the DVD that's very difficult to get your hands on. And also a commentary with me and Will Sloan. That's three. I interview so many people. Jim Farley, Milhouse G., Brian Fortin, and this is a big one, Kevin McGee. <laughs> yes, we spoke to Kevin McGee himself. There's bloopers. There's an uncut making of that Charles Roxburgh provided to me. And biggest of all, an unreleased, uh, available nowhere, Motern Media feature film, Druids, Druids Everywhere. Their apocalyptic epic that they made, never screened and put in a drawer, like, more than a decade ago? Way more than a decade ago. This is the holy grail for Matt Farley, Charles Roxburg fans. We, we asked them, I said, how many people have seen this movie? And they, I, I said, 20. And they said, oh, t- 20, 20 is the outer limits. Like, <laughs> fewer than 20 have seen this movie. This is the day the clown cried of Motown Media. It's black and white. Matt Farley wears a crazy beard. It's a throwback to their adventures in Krubin country, where it's mostly just them doing stuff in the woods. But like, it's definitely the movie you should watch after you've seen all the other ones. 
But if you've seen all the other ones, oh man. Oh, I would not recommend to see seeing this one before you saw Sammy and Druid Gladiator clone. But once you reach the end, this may have... I, I'm not going to say the funniest ending of Motor Media, because that's already been done. But in second place, this one has a jaw-dropping final few minutes. <laughs> that made me laugh so hard. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great film. A great fans-only film. And, and uh, for a mere $15, you can get it. And while you're at it, you should also get a release of Creature from Black Lake, which is a great 70s Bigfoot film. It's like those beautiful regional pictures that were made by a family in this case the McCulloughs and it's two bozos from the big city go to the country and they meet a bunch of hilarious characters and uh uh-oh Bigfoot as well and I picked this one because it ties into that Moturn universe for people that don't know the Moturn media guys they do this thing called shock marathons they've been doing it since the 2000s where Tom Scalzo, Charlie Roxburgh, and Mac Farley get together and watch movies for 48 hours and I know that Creature from Black Lake was one of their favorites, so that's what I'm putting out. I did a commentary with them, so it's like you can be part of the Shock Marathon group as well. And it also includes the amazing William Greffy film, I Love to Kill, aka Impulse, which is the most delirious performance of William Shatner ever put to film. Oh, man. There's uh, the history of shock marathons, a video on how to organize your own marathons, and me and Will talk about regional horror, and we pick some of our favorites. So much stuff! But wait, there's more! (laughs) Okay, so last uh, March or April... I DM'd Justin. I said, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be funny if uh, we wrote a book that's like Hitchcock Truffaut or Bergman on Bergman, where we talk to Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh about all their films and it's an interview book. I think my response was like, yeah, that'd be good. And uh, well, we reached out to them and uh, here we are six months later and we've got a book, folks. That's right. The Important Cinema Club podcast second book is Moturn on Moturn Conversations with Matt Farley and Charles Roxburg. The first and definitive book about Moturn Media. Now, how would you sell it to someone who doesn't know Moturn Media? What are the elements that you think would appeal to just general film people or the general population, really? We want this to be a number one bestseller. You know, I thought this book would just be for fans, but it turns out like as I was transcribing it, I was tearing up folks because this is about so much more than just them. It's a story about independent cinema of the last 20 years. It's a story about all the trends that have taken place. Fly by night film festivals, print on demand, DVD companies, shady YouTube based distributors, eccentric regional entrepreneurs who make films that they've run into. It's also a book about friendship two men who met in college shared a passion for making films and continued to make films more than 10 films across the next 20 years against all odds to zero attention like no attention and they kept doing it and you get a real sense of what propelled them and allowed them to keep making these movies just reading them talk about it and they admit in those interviews a lot of these films they have never been questioned about ever and they're making these discoveries as they're just you know talking about it with us they talk about their art they talk about their philosophy and they talk about the trials and tribulations of making ten thousand dollar independent films with your friends what happens when you have a complex scene that you have to shoot it's day three out of four days that you have to shoot and uh uh-oh the lead actor eh, doesn't want to come (laughs) 
Or what if you're shooting on film with an old broken Russian camera that you bought in a thrift store and you find that you have to glue the lens on every morning before you go shoot and hope that, you know, there's not any problems because if there are, you may have lost thousands of dollars. Like the level of complications and drama that happened in these films that didn't get the audiences that they deserved is crazy. And you get it all in this book. Yeah, if you like the movie Ed Wood, you'll like this book. This is our generation's Nightmare and Ecstasy, the Ed Wood oral history that was written by Rudolph Gray Jr. So, yeah, I'm I'm just uh, I'm very excited about it. Um and it, listen, if you don't if you haven't seen any Matt Farley or Charles Roxburgh movies, Don't Let the River Beast Get You is just sitting there on Amazon Prime. You'll watch it and you'll say what is this world? I need to know more. I need context. Go to goldninjavideo.com. Buy Local Legends. Buy River Beast. Buy Creature from Black Lake. Buy the book. Get them all together. There will be nothing that is more fun this year than all of those things. It's almost the end of the year. Treat yourself with something. It's all available at goldninjavideo.com. The Blu-rays, as per usual, are limited. So, you know, don't say, ah, I'll buy it in a few months because they'll be gone by then. And the book is also available to be purchased there. It's a little cheaper than it will be in other places that it will, will show up. So keep that in mind. That's true. It, it will eventually be on Amazon, although we encourage you to not line Jeff Bezos's pockets. Uh, come to goldninjavideo.com. That was a long ad segment, but it was long because we were passionate about it. It was long because we care about this. And so much work went into it. And we want people a lot to buy of work. it. <laughs> yeah. A lot of work went into it. Have you folks ever transcribed 60,000 words? <laughs> But it was all worth it when we talked to Kevin McGee. Can we just talk about, like, wasn't it surreal to do that, to call him up on the phone and both of us be able to speak with him? You know, him? To, to people in Kevin McGee's ordinary life, they probably don't realize what a huge star he is. But to us, I'm I'm so much, you know, if, if I don't know, who's a big star nowadays? If frickin' Timothy Chalamet showed up in front of me, I wouldn't care. But Kevin McGee? You'd be like, whoa, like a surreal disconnect seeing this person that you've enjoyed so much on screen that it's such a presence appear in front of you. And there are some real releva- revelations in those interviews that you're going to want to read about. So, <laughs> all right. So moving on to letters. Our first letter goes, greetings, Justin and Will. First, as a person who learned from the podcast that Kung Fu Zombie was a mysterious childhood film I'd seen, but I'd never known the name of, I am overjoyed that my letter telling you this led to Will having his similar mystery about the movie The Fur Tree Solved. Yes. I hope Will hasn't spent much time on the therapist's couch recounting the pain of seeing it again. Also, great gold ninja video release of Kung Fu Zombie. So for people that don't remember, this person emailed me saying, oh, thank you for revealing uh, the movie I think of with Kung Fu Zombie. And then I replied with, oh, I actually put that out on Blu-ray as well. And they were like, what? Crazy. <laughs> and it continues. Second, a few episodes ago when mentioning Cannonball Run, I was disappointed that you didn't bring up the scene where Jackie Chan watches a VHS tape of Behind the Green Door while driving. <laughs> Well, how could you have not mentioned this? We didn't bring it up, but rest assured that when I saw Cannonball Run, I did I did notice that scene. I logged it in my brain. I could picture screenwriter Brock Yates drafting the scene and thinking, one day in the future, two genteel Canadian poon hounds that love kung fu cinema will appreciate this. I guess he would have been mistaken. <laughs> And finally, my ears perked up during the last podcast where Will had enough of Justin's Wallace bashing 
but it never degenerated into full-on battle royale of rage and descent like Siskel and Ebert when they locked horns over Benji the Hunted. Do you remember the Benji the Hunted review, Will? Oh, of course I remember the Benji the Hunted review. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't. I've seen every Siskel and Ebert review. Which had me wondering, what was the most heated disagreement or argument the two of you had had with anyone about a movie? Thanks so much for the podcast, gentlemen. Hashtag Team Ernest. Chris. So he didn't say specifically us. He said anyone that you've had a disagreement with. Oh, um. Me and Will don't really disagree about movies because if we know what the other person likes and we don't try to impose the taste on them in any way, shape, or form. The funniest disagreement is definitely Kung Pao, which you can hear in the Patreon episodes or in written form in the Important Cinema Club Journal. Yeah, you know, I would say that like like with us, if there's somebody who one of us really doesn't like, we probably just won't do an episode on them. Um, it, there may be episodes where we sort of disagree just like in, in level of enthusiasm. You know, there are some people I like more. There are some people you like more. Mm, but never like vitriol. Like, how can you not like this person? Except, of course, for Kung Pao. <laughs> yeah. No, I under- but I understand why you don't like Kung Pao. <laughs> Which I was probably wrong I, you know, I should see it again. I was probably wrong. It's probably a masterpiece. Uh, but as far as disagreeing with other people, I think I said this before, but it's something that I don't really do anymore. Every time like, I see Letterboxd or on Twitter and it's like, there's an opinion I disagree with. I usually go, who cares? <laughs> like, they cannot enjoy it. So it doesn't really bother me that much. I feel like I've had more heated disagreements about politics than I have about film. So I don't know. Ooh, I can think of a few uh, Twitter arguments that you've gotten into that I don't think I can mention on this podcast because the people you did uh, may be listening. <clears throat> oh, oh, that, yeah, yeah. I got, I got in a fight with Norm Wilner on, um, on, a, on Twitter. Like maybe whenever Radley Metzger died, that's probably the biggest uh, disagreement I've had with someone. I think you've also disagreed with other people when they're dismissive of a filmmaker when they pass away, <laughs> and you're like, "Come on, man, what are you doing?" That's that's what triggered me about Radley Metzger. I mean, that opinion is objectively wrong. Well, that... <laughs> you know that that's what I say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Radley Metzger, one of the most famous porn fil- filmmakers ever. Not just a porn filmmaker, a great... Yeah, uh, straight filmmaker, Cat in the Canary, tons of stuff. I mean, Camille 2000, what's not to like? Um, anyway, I'm sure that Norm has seen the light since then. <laughs> but yeah, I don't really get in, into uh, disagreements with anybody, especially on the internet, because it boils down to, at the end, like, I'm not going to convince a stranger. <laughs> and if they're my friend... Yeah, they can like whatever they like. Also, movies don't really matter. No, they don't. You know what really matters? Making jokes about politics, which that's my new persona on the internet. I'm trying to get in on the Will Sloan territory. Listen to my new <laughs> podcast, Us and Michael, where we go through all of Michael Moore's filmography. Coming soon. You need to have a friend who's a writer for Jacobin, too, and then you can get some yeah. Twitter followers. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, can I get somebody from uh, those publications people don't like, like The New Republic or um, Baffler? Well, you'll probably get more followers. If you if you go a little more mainstream, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it'll be like a McLean's podcast uh, or you know the Walrus. That's pretty bad, right? Do they still have lots of followers? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about the Walrus. In yeah, a while. Porn Cinema Club now with a new political slant. We need those listeners. We need those clicks. So, what are we doing next week, Will? Or actually, what are we doing on our Patreon episode this week? By popular demand, actually not by popular demand at all. I just wanted to say that we are investigating chevy chase we watched fletch uh, again <laughs> Did, have we talked about him before nothing but trouble oh of course how could i forget yes uh we watched the signature chevy joint fletch and do does it still hold up 
the classic that your uncle talks about? You'll have to listen to the Patreon episode to find out at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. $5 a month, you can listen to all our back catalog. And for people that are currently Patreon subscribers, we made it to over 300. Thanks so much for subscribing. What won the poll? Was it the video game movies? Was it Shrek? Was it Ernest? Will doesn't know. Please not Shrek. Please not Shrek. Please not Shrek. And it's Shred Ernest. Oh, oh my Will's god! Will's eyes wind for a second. He's like, "Oh my, oh my god. god!" So very soon, me and Will will sit down and watch the last five Ernest movies, and uh, we're gonna do a podcast on it that those three hundred Patreon subscribers can listen to. All right. So next week. We're doing one that people have been asking us, why haven't you done this yet? For years, we're talking about David Cronenberg. Now, this is Shocktober, so I'm sure we'll do some of his er, some of his early funny ones, you know? Yeah, I got Shivers, the new Vestron video release that was put out, sitting on my shelf. Time to give that bad boy a spin. Maybe, uh, what should we watch? The Brood? Uh, Rabid, maybe? Rabid, yeah. I mean, the classics and Butterfly. <laughs> uh, maps to the Stars. Oh, Maps to the Stars. I didn't see that one. I'm sure Will did, because, you know. I did. He feel the responsibility of seeing new bad movies from cult filmmakers. (laughs) (laughs) But what is this body horror thing? Well, we're going to dive in next week. And until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Will, this is an intervention. And it's an intervention about your obsession with Roger Ebert. Uh, uh, I can quit anytime I want. You can't, Will. You can't. When you think film critic, the first thing you see are those glasses and the passionate but slightly bland and unchallenging opinions of Roger Ebert himself. I think I'll tell you why I've been so obsessed with Roger Ebert lately. It's because I've realized that... He he loomed so large. He was like the sun around which all film discourse revolved, especially like in the last 10 or 15 years of his life. What you know? about Gene Shalit? <laughs> what about Gene Shalit? It's Ouch. like, if you were on the internet and you s- searched for a movie, his was the first thing that came up. In IMDb, external reviews, he was at the top. You know, there there were so many movies uh, at the time where like if somebody was talking about the beyond by Lucio Fulci it was almost like de rigueur that there would be some reference to oh Ebert gave it half a star you know so what you're trying to think is bring back the monarchy <laughs> let a king reign upon us no the opposite mm. and and so like I made that jokey tweet about like what would his star ratings be if he were still alive and uh, I feel like I feel like those actually, I, I, I think I'm 100% right on what those star ratings would have been. And and people who are fans of him don't want to believe those are what the star ratings would have been. because. What do you mean the star ratings would have been? I was speculating on for movies that came out after he died, how many stars would he have given them? Oh, okay. And some people who write for RogerEber.com didn't like that. Uh, but, no, but you're picking like, fights with Scott Tafoya? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not him. Not him. Yeah, he's a good guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Phew. No, Matt Matt Zoller Sites was was <laughs> unhappy about it. Um, <laughs> what? Not him? Not Matt uh, Zoller Sites? Uh, but I feel like you know Roger Ebert's taste, everything he stood for, his whole sort of critical ethos. Um, is not in fashion anymore. Yeah, stuck in amber. And, you know, when he died, I remember seeing some, like, people fretting on the internet of being like, God, the most famous film critic died. What does that mean for film criticism? What does that mean for serious, intelligent conversation about film? And I don't think film culture uh, really lost a lot. And, in fact, I think not having him at the center of all film discourse 
only makes film discourse more uh, diverse and interesting. Well, Will, what about stuff like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> Just the percentage. You know, I almost want to take people aside and be like, you know, before there was Rotten Tomatoes, it was Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel that everybody talked about if it got like sums up or sums down. Like that was the metric that it was judged by. Yeah, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy to think about? Like, but you know, like Ebert is also in my mind because like when you go back and read his reviews, they're not that great. Well, he has very middle brow tastes. Yeah, and you know, the reviews are just kind of like, kind you know, they're okay, but you know, they're they're pretty superficial. And I mean, we're in October. We can't not mention his Think of the Children reviews. <laughs> oh my God, all, all of the horror movies that he was, he got so upset by. Um, but it's like, I think ever since he died, his legacy, I don't think really endures after his death because so much of it was self-perpetuating. So much of it was about the fact that, well, he is the most famous film critic in the world. Um, so therefore he matters, but when he's no longer the most famous working film critic, you know, does the stuff really hold up? I don't know. I mean, you said that you've seen every one of his reviews. Do you ever read any of his work? He wrote a lot of books. I have read a lot of his work. Do I revisit it? No, but I do revisit him arguing with Gene Siskel because it's fun. (laughs) So that's where the real value is that the people that were on the top, just petty arguments between each other. Gene Siskel, a guy that didn't even really like movies that much. You know what's funny about Siskel and Ebert? Like, that show set them up as, like, these these two guys who always disagreed. They had exactly the same taste. There was nothing different <laughs> yeah. about those guys. Middle brow, like, you know, I, uh, Siskel like Carnosaur. Sue him. <laughs> That's pretty much what it came down to. That's the extent. There was no difference in worldview between these two Yeah, men. they were real Justin DeClues and Will Sloan. I mean, yes, but it's not like we set our ourselves up as like you know the crossfire of film criticism <laughs> That's true. but we would like to be on the pedestal that um gene siskel and roger ebert were if only the canadian equivalent yeah oh you know if i had a chance to have ebert's life i would take it mm-hmm. and you could end it complaining that video games aren't art <laughs> right down <laughs> to the final moment you know what's funny if you search his name on twitter the like every day there are still video game people who complain about that. Like they remember Roger Ebert. They, they it's remember weird because people would believe Roger Ebert because he is the guy that's been there for the longest. And if you read those arguments, they are so like thin and just not there. stuff like, well, Tetris is not art. So how could video games be art? It's like Roger, Tetris can be art? What are you talking about? I also think, like, who cares? Uh, the people who make video <laughs> games because it gives them a cultural cachet to be make themselves feel important. I, I guess so, but it's like, I don't know, like, who cares if Roger Ebert thinks it's art or not? Who cares if it is art or not, you know? 